You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com. In today's podcast, we have a special guest, Sharon Moore. She's the author of a best-selling book called Sleep Wrecked Kids. It's a phenomenal book. She's a speech pathologist from Australia, and she's taken a deep dive in the understanding of how breathing and sleep and facial development and airways really matter with your kids. Um, She's an author, speaker, speech pathologist, founder of a a website called wellspoken.com.au. It's wellspoken.com.au. She's uh, on the transdisciplinary team in Canberra Sleep, in the Canberra Sleep Clinic uh, to help patients breathe and sleep better by conditioning the upper airways. This is important for adults, right? But it's even more important for kids because if you screw it up when you're young, you just play catch up the rest of your life, really. Knowing the critical impact on, on, of sleep on a child's physical, mental, social, emotional development, and a whole lot more than that, actually, as we'll dive into, She's spreading the word to parents about the importance of sleep and breathing as they prepare their children for life um, inside and outside the bubble, especially being ready to start school. And it all starts with a really good night's sleep. And it turns out that a lot of kids don't sleep very well. I think in her book, she talks like something like 40% of kids on average, 11 million kids in America don't sleep well. And the impact of that is major. Now, if you're a parent with a young kid or you're a grandparent or you're a grandparent-to-be like me, um, you really want to think about this because it's critically important to, to be able to pick up on these problems really early on and fix them. In her book, I think you also said, Sharon, that um, was it 40% of those sleep problems are easily fixed with a little couple of tweaks at home? Is, is that what it was about? That's exactly anyway, right. So welcome. Thank you so much. So yeah, so, so let's dive into this. And you know, um, so you're telling us that a few things that kids can do at home, parents can do at home can change really their whole life, really, truly, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. So you're a speech pathologist. Why did you write this? But how did you get into this? That is such a great question. <laughs> I think it was coming for a long, long time. I've had a fairly interesting career as a speech pathologist and a lot of speech pathologists do a lot of different things. And traditionally, the public would think, oh, they help with stuttering. Oh, they help fix speech problems or swallowing or help people with strokes. They do. They do do all those things. But what my career has done is it's, it's taking me on a path of working with medical specialists and dentists, working on the problems in the upper airway. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, that's exactly where we breathe and that's exactly where we swallow and, and we speak as well. Um, but some of the research over the last six or so years shows that when we work with the muscles in this airway, that we can improve breathing during sleep. And so my career has led me down that pathway. And I think with the, uh, all the new uh, research, the amazing amount of research that's coming up in sleep medicine, um, it's a very, very exciting area to be involved in. It's right at the beginning, I think, of, of a different way, a different perspective for a speech pathologist to work and uh, helping not just with daytime problems, but at night. And if we think about kids, they sleep for about half their life, right? at least half, especially preschoolers need somewhere between 10 and 13 hours of sleep every single night. That's for some of them more than half the day. And so if we're worried about what happens with kids' health in the daytime, I think it's high time we start thinking about what's happening at the nighttime as well, because 
you know, there's an awful lot going on at night that we know now that we didn't know before. Yeah, like you said, it's half their life. So yeah, so sorry, go ahead. ahead. Well, so parents, you know, I think are intrigued by this. I guess maybe the, the, the to 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 get people to understand. Can you just give me a list of some of the complications and health concerns that kids have, even as adults? If we don't, if we don't, I want to then get into how to identify these problems. But let's talk about what happens if we don't identify them and they left and they're left untreated. What what are the, what's the gamut of problems that that could happen as young adults, kids, teenagers, even adults? Okay, so it can happen in every area of development. If we look at physical, we look at growth delays. When sleep is not quite right, there are growth delays. It affects their immunity, their ability to stay well. So these kids might get more colds more often or, you know, come just, just be vulnerable to picking up bugs a lot more often. Uh, you've got increase in heart rate. So kids uh, with a serious sleep disorder can develop cardiovascular problems or metabolic issues, uh, high blood pressure. And there's research to show us as well that kids who aren't breathing properly at night uh, can become obese. So there's a higher percentage of kids that will be very prone to weight gain. It also affects their ability to exercise, their physical coordination, uh, uh, their endurance and their, their, their strength. It affects their motor skills and their coordination. And, and that's just things that are happening in the body. But in the brain, there's uh, their ability to focus and concentrate and learn is affected, their memory is affected. So it has the potential to have a really big impact on, on their education. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to get sleep right before kids start school. You know, it's like we have a window of opportunity. Here we are, there are 40% of kids who've got sleep problems. Let's fix it before they start school. And that really starts with screening. Like, how do you know if a child has a sleep problem? You know, that's what a lot of, there's a lot, still a lot of myths and misconceptions in society. And I hear them pretty much every day in my clinic. Um, parents almost think it's normal just for kids to keep waking up at night, just because that's what they've always done. They're stretching the boundaries around, uh, oh, um, I can train my kids to need less sleep. I hear that one. Or they can train themselves to need less sleep. Or snoring. If, if kids snore loudly, that means they're having a deep sleep. Is that right? You know, mm -hmm. you still hear a lot of misconceptions around what is normal sleep. So... The other areas of development, we, we talked about the physical and we talked about the, the mental, I suppose, you know, attention and focus and learning and memory. Uh, they're all degraded when kids don't get the right kind of sleep, but also emotional stability, their mood, their ability to regulate their emotions. It's everything is disturbed when kids don't get the right sleep. And of course, behavior. You know, if kids um, aren't well slept, they're the ones that are kind of fractious and arguing and defiant and they don't do what you want them to do. And of course, you know, a little bit of that is quite normal in childhood. But when that is happening all the time, that's not normal and it's, it really is a common outcome. Um, I mean, in terms of behavior, uh, there are studies to show that kids have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder-like symptoms. And, you know, the pediatric sleep specialists are really calling, uh, they're, they're calling out really strongly and saying, 
to all the doctors and the pediatricians out there, if there's a child with this ADHD, make sure you test their sleep. Look at their sleep because many of them can resolve some of those behaviors um, by fixing the sleep. And if a child has true ADHD, they need sleep more than anything. So, uh, you know, really sleep health needs to be prioritized. So if we, we're thinking about all these consequences of, of um, physical and mental and emotional, but there's also social consequences. Um, because when kids are having these kind of issues, it can be harder for them to make and keep friends. It's harder for them to have harmonious relationships within the family. Because it's not easy if you've got a, a fractious, tired child to keep everything harmonious. And so, yeah, there, there, there are implications. Pretty much every area of a child's development is, not, is unscathed with good sleep. Uh, but poor sleep, irrespective of the severity, it's going to have impacts in every area of development. And uh, so I guess in terms of what, what do parents need to know, you know, what, what would help them? I think maybe the first thing is what is good sleep? You know, what, what is it? Because it's become quite distorted in our day-to-day -day society. If you ask most people, you know, how many hours sleep, for example, do you need every night? Most people either don't know or they'll say, oh, I don't need that. You know, I only get six hours sleep a night and I'm fine. And we know that for adults, it simply is not enough. And of course, with children, depending on their age, they need a number, you know, different number of hours a night. But good sleep means we get the right number of hours for our age. And that with that sleep, that it is actually really good quality as well. And good quality really means quiet, uninterrupted sleep. Yeah, literally silent, the sleep of the dead. Uh, and where a body is quite still throughout the night. So when sleep is disrupted, particularly if there's breathing and sleep problems, kids will move around a lot or their body will get into very odd positions. Uh, I've seen, I've not seen this personally, I've seen photos of this where kids will get into a position like a snail. Can you imagine that body position where their head is on the pillow sideways and their whole backside or their bottom is up in the air? Or they'll sleep with their head way back, with their chin up and their head extended and their mouth open. So these are all little signs that, you know, sleep's not perfect or breathing during sleep is not perfect. So parents would say, well, you know, what is good sleep? Well, you know, you need the right number of hours and you need this great quality, this quiet, uninterrupted, still sleep where the bed is pretty much the same as when the kids lay down at night. And then we want them to wake refreshed. Right. So, right. you know, you could almost call this taking a sleep pulse. Now we take our pulse and we check right. our heartbeat. Well, you could take a sleep pulse and there would be these questions. Did, did my child get enough sleep? Did my child get great quality sleep? Did they wake refreshed? And the fourth really important question is really, then what happened during the day? You know, 
did they manage those natural energy peaks and troughs during the day? Or were they having meltdowns? And of course, in that zero to five age where kids are still having naps and uh, you know those naps gradually fade, um, you know, by the time they're starting school, usually they're not having naps anymore. Um, but we want to know if kids are getting too tired during the day. That's a, that's a sign that they might not be getting quite the right sleep or if they're wired. Now that is kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum. The tired kids are the floppy ones without any energy uh, and like everything is a little bit too hard and the, because they haven't slept well enough or the wired ones are the ones that are swinging off the light bulbs and can't focus and can't attend and, and, and the ones that um, a little bit like the attention deficit hyperactivity disordered kids, the ADHD. So they seem to fall in either of those two categories. Mm. It's sort of the... <clears throat> The wired and tired effect, you know, yeah. people think, you know, that, um, you know, I've got so much energy, you know, um, that I can't sleep at night. Well, you know, and uh, but the reality is that that energy that you have depletes you and you actually need energy to sedate yourself. But if you don't get the sleep, right, you don't get the energy that you need to actually support that natural circadian rhythm of cortisol energy during the day and then melatonin at night. So the more, so the more, and that's why they give kids with ADHD, you know, stimulants, right? To stimulate them, to give them the energy that they don't have because they're so exhausted, probably because they don't sleep at night, to have the energy they need to, they can sort of sedate themselves somewhat, at least focus and go to sleep and have some sense of a, of a circadian rhythm, right? So these kids are, what you're saying is basically, they're just flat out exhausted, right? Yeah. 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 And I so think you, that, yeah. sorry, I was just thinking that phenomena of tired wired in its own way, it applies to adults as well. Oh, yeah. So some adults just have to be active. Now, part of it is a, perhaps sometimes a more energetic kind of profile. But when you, you know, you have to be super active all the time, sometimes that is a way of keeping yourself awake. I know I did that as an adult for many years myself. Uh, I'm a bit of a recovered sleep wreck person myself. You know, that's a different story. But I think that tired, wired phenomena is, is quite a good way of thinking about adults. And of course, if you've got sleep wrecked kids, you've probably got sleep wrecked parents. Right. So it, it's a little bit of a time bomb in the family scenario, right? Yeah, I was fascinated by it. in your book, you mentioned that even when moms are nursing and or I'm not when moms are pregnant, rather nursing too, but when they're pregnant, if they're not breathing correctly, that that can actually affect the amount of oxygen that the baby's receiving, that the fetus is receiving. I mean, I was like, okay, wow, that takes it to another level. I mean, you would think that the baby just gets what it needs in a pregnant mom. That's what we always hear. You can, the mom can feel terrible during the entire pregnancy, but the baby gets what they need. But what, what the, you're saying in your book is that's not actually true. If you're not breathing quite right as a mom and you're a sleep-wrecked mom, you're, you're setting up, you have a sleep-wrecked fetus in there, which is you know, only gonna you know, continue, right? Yeah, you brought up such a fantastic point, uh, you know, that I think in pregnancy, it's one of the only human processes where the, the mother's health is prioritized over the baby's. So when the mother uh, has compromised breathing, during the pregnancy, it actually slows down the baby's body movements. And this, the, the, one of the reasons this is very critical, particularly in the third trimester, is that there's a, the, the baby is actually rehearsing mouth movements like swallowing and sucking and breathing during that third trimester. And it really is preparing that baby 
to be strong enough and ready for breastfeeding at birth. So if the baby's general movements are slowed down, so are they. And then when that happens, the doctors get concerned and sometimes they will induce a pregnancy or, you know, they, it, there will be an earlier birth, like at 38 weeks or, or even 39 or 38 or 37 or sometimes even earlier. And that means that that baby has missed out on really essential preparation for breastfeeding. And um, so the movements, those very uh, delicate coordinated movements for sucking and swallowing and breathing after birth, they're, they're a little bit compromised in a baby. It's harder for them. And there's more chance that that baby's going to have tr trouble with breastfeeding uh, the earlier the birth. So that actually leads into one of your other questions that you were talking about earlier. And that was about airway and breathing. And that's really where it starts. You know, yeah. um, breastfeeding is critical for development of the airway and the shape and the size of the face and the upper jaw. So it's that sucking motion uh, that happens during breastfeeding that helps to shape that part of the face. And that is really the front of the airway. And so we say, why have so many people got sleep and breathing problems? Why have so many kids got sleep and breathing problems these days? And we know that there's a lot of lost wisdom. Breastfeeding practices have diminished significantly, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, uh, when you know mums went to work and kids were put on the bottle. And, um, kids weren't breastfed and so it was it's a little bit like lost art or lost wisdom the breastfeeding but uh that breastfeeding influences the shape and size of the jaw and so does nose breathing and so does chewing and this is where some of the other uh, things that we've lost in society where say we used to chew for four hours a day as humans I mean these days I don't know if anybody has done an actual big study to show how many hours we as humans and and young kids chew every day but what we do know is that kids are often started on soft mushy foods bottles sippy cups, spouts. And all of these things influence the way the muscles are used in this front part of the airway. And so how, if the muscle systems aren't there to support the growth of the bones in the, in the face and the jaws, then kids are really at a disadvantage for developing a healthy airway. And this is a special interest of yours, right? Nose breathing and airway. Right, yeah. That was my first book way back in the late 80s. I wrote a book about comparing nose breathing versus mouth breathing and exercise. And we published some studies on that, which was you know, quite fascinating. And, and when I was doing the research on that book <clears throat> in India, and I was looking for research on exercise, and I kept coming across research on how parents would teach their kids how to breathe when they went to sleep at night, and they would teach them how to close their mouth. And it was like, I don't want to know about that. I want to know about how they do it with that. I was like really into the whole exercise thing, which is also important. But uh, I kept stumbling upon their traditions and the research papers that they did and techniques that moms and dads would use to tuck their kids, turn, tuck, turn them on their side, tuck their chins and teach them how to close their mouth and become nose breathers. Now, so when you, so, so here we have, so here, I guess my question is, and I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people are probably thinking the same thing. Are all breathing issues, you know, other than maybe being separated from mom and dad too, too soon, stuff like that, but all basic breathing issues, are they due to poor airway development? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, no, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Uh, right. 
Uh, oh, sorry. No, let me clarify. By airway development, do you mean the size and the shape of the airway? Well, I mean, you know, just in terms of, you know, we don't chew. So the, the airways, because we don't chew, don't develop as wide and as large. Like, you know, the face becomes more narrow and longer. And we have structural issues, facial issues, airway issues that come because we don't chew. So I guess the best question is, is a lack of chewing the cause of lack of airways and a lack of airways the cause of sleep concerns? Like, how does it go? Like, what's the sequence of events? Like, what's the first domino of this whole problem? Is it the chewing? Is it the not learning how to to close your mouth when you sleep? A little bit of both? I, I mean, you've touched on one of the very big questions, you know, the chicken and the egg. I think it's right, very right. much a bi-directional issue as a bi, like it goes both ways. And I think each person is going to have their own individual circumstances. But there are, um, you know, apart from the fact that we now as humans are growing smaller faces and smaller mouths and smaller jaws, um, uh, I think that um, breastfeeding practices and chewing and nose breathing, but also where our muscles rest when they've got nothing else to do and then how our muscles are used. So in, in my work, uh, in the world of orofacial myofunctional science, we look really closely at the role of the muscles in the upper airway in keeping it all healthy. And so when we look at that, chewing is one aspect of that. It is a very, very important one. And if we look at um, the other things that influence the jaw growth, we want the tongue to be fully resting in the upper jaw or the maxilla. And that the, the, the research that we've got on that in the dental area shows that having all of the tongue, not just a little bit of the tongue, but if you imagine here, like the, 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 the roof of the mouth is, is like a, a cave, call it the roof cave. And really the, all of the tongue, the full body of the tongue should be resting up so that the, all of the tongue is touching all of the roof of the mouth. You're doing this with your tongue now, right? Mm -hmm. And that yeah. happens and automatically <laughs> when, you, when, you, when, you, when you breathe through your nose, right? Yeah, Generally. exactly. Exactly. It's much more likely when you're breathing through your nose that your tongue is in the correct position. So we know that the resting posture of the tongue will influence the shape and the size of the jaw growth and, and also maintaining that. Uh, then the way the, the, the tongue moves in swallowing is actually quite important. So what we want in a mature swallow, which really after about 12 months of age, a child is capable and should progress onto what we call a mature or a palatal swallow. And that is where that tongue starts in that position I just described and it sticks there. And you swallow from that point without the tongue sticking forward or pushing on the teeth or coming through the teeth. Have you ever heard of something called a tongue thrust swallow? Yeah, I think I have. Well, I, th I'm, I think it's probably from your work, but yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. So it's when we're looking at the way the muscles work inside this upper airway system, we look at how the tongue moves and how the lips work and the muscles in the face and the muscles of the throat. And swallowing is one of those key things that we do many many times a day. And so that action of the tongue pressuring and pushing up against the palate will also help to maintain the shape of the palate. So when you have mouth breathing, what the muscles will tend to do is the tongue will tend to sit low and it will roll forward. It will roll against the back of the teeth or it will roll out and sit through the teeth. And you can see that in some kids, it develops what we call a malocclusion or a bad bite. So as the teeth and the jaws are developing, we look at them and we want the teeth in the upper jaw to sit a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle, fit, fit 
like a nice neat little jigsaw puzzle, top teeth to bottom teeth. But what happens is that kids bites or that jaw, you know, the way that top jaw and the bottom jaw sit together, it gets distorted. And you, you can get openings like a, an open bite. And you'll see this with a child who sucks their thumb. There'll be a gap between the top teeth and the bottom teeth, even when their jaws are sitting together. And uh, so the tongue will move into that space and uh, muscles get into habits. And if there's a, if you've got a, a missing tooth or a, a, a tooth decay, all your tongue wants to do is sit on that tooth and play with it, right? And it's the same with if there's a gap in between your teeth, your tongue wants to sit there all the time. And that stops those teeth from closing down. And uh, it also means that the tongue is not sitting in the right place. So it's a cycle that needs to be broken. Now, can just... So, so I want to just dig a little bit deeper into that. You know, when we chew, right, these masseter muscles and other muscles become very, very strong. When you sleep at night, the tongue gets pushed against the roof of the mouth and the palate widens. And it therefore supports the structure of the face to be sort of wider and more squared off as opposed to more long and narrow, right? Mm -hmm. And as that tongue gets pushed up, it, it, it actually takes the palate, which can be kind of V-shaped and pointed like that, and it sort of flattens it out and that widens the jaw. So therefore you have a wider jaw. And when that palate goes from there to here, um, you could reach up with your tongue and you could feel sort of a cave-like palate, like a slight arch as opposed to a pointy roof. And, mm -hmm. and, and so here's my question. The jaw chewing seems like it's making these muscles on the outside so much stronger that they would sort of push against the palate and almost make it want to go like that. But is it, is it the tongue at night sleeping that's so strong that it, and, and there for such a eight hour stretch or 14 hour stretch of sleeping, that is pushing against the tendency of the jaw muscles to push in? Or how does that work? This mass of, of course, the mass of the right, the biggest, strongest muscle in our body. How does the tongue compete against that? Or are they competing? It seems like the vector one's going in and one's trying to push it out. And I'm wondering how, how that works. It's such a great question. Well, the mass of the muscles, it's more of a vertical movement. And that really, for that to happen probably, uh, properly the teeth need to be upright mm. from top to bottom but when you get these collapsed jaws often the teeth are, uh, are angling this way in towards right. the tongue um, okay so let me come back to that yes you're absolutely right you need to get a balance of muscle forces and sometimes rather than the masseter muscles it's the cheek muscles that can you know add additional pressure that can tip the teeth towards the tongue if the tongue isn't going up to the palate properly or if it can't because everything is too narrow now in perfect conditions where uh, there's enough room in the palate that the tongue can go up there and fit there and keep the airway at the back of the tongue open for nighttime breathing. We, we want, we're looking for those conditions not just to happen just at night, but it also needs to happen during the daytime. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a night and day thing where the tongue is resting up, but also you want that tongue to be swallowing up. So chewing and swallowing go together when we chew, then we have to swallow. So even if we're chewing properly, we still need uh, the correct muscle forces to happen during swallowing to have the correct influence on the palate. But that still might not be the only answer. And this is where it's uh, really important to work with dentists and orthodontists because sometimes you might need some help you might need some help with a little bit of expansion 
and there are dentists and orthodontists who are working with what is called growth guidance techniques and a combination of having a, a, a little appliance in the mouth that helps to speed things up. So the forces of, of getting the muscles to do the right thing, it takes time, right? You know, when you're building muscles or you're learning a new, your, your body is learning to do a new thing, that takes time. Whereas expanding or making the anatomy a little bit wider by using a device can happen faster and might with some kids make the room that allows the tongue to move into the correct position. And to come back to the, the chewing, uh, the, the chewing piece, there are also appliances that we can use to help kids chew better or to get stronger. So uh, we teach kids a chew technique and what we want them to do is to be chewing on, say, 70% of crunchy, chewy foods during the day. But again, that process takes time. So if we, if we want kids to develop a really healthy upper airway and chewing's part of that, uh, we don't want to wait until they're capable of doing all that chewing all day. So we'll use things like a chew noodle. Have you ever heard of that? No. What is it? A chew noodle is like it's, uh, something like this. It's like a, a, a thick silicon tube that you can put in and munch on it or chomp on like it. A, like a puppy toy. Yeah, a bit like a puppy toy. Uh, and there are a lot of... Um, a, so a lot do you of do the, it right? Do you just chew it or is there a special technique of chewing? Show us how to do it the right way. Well, the way I teach kids with, with a chew noodle like this, which is it's super cheap, actually. You can buy silicon straws at the supermarket and uh, you get the kids to hold them end to end and you ask them to open their mouth like a big shark and put a big smile on. And the smiley muscles are super important. You've got to get your teeth open as well. And then this straw is going to go right in on the back teeth and they're going to keep smiling because that works the muscles in the throat as well. And then you're going to ask them to chomp, 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 chomp and right. keep chomping and keep smiling. And eventually we teach them to chomp and move this noodle forward tooth by tooth till they get right to the front here. And then they're biting that noodle right with the front teeth and then they slowly move back. They love this. <laughs> they, kids love chewing these things and we um we often will do that to music and we slowly mm -hmm. build up their chew muscles and there's lots of other i guess chew devices and things and mouthing and biting devices on the market but i like this because it's symmetrical it means the right side and the left side are working at the same time and when once kids have learned how to use one of these properly, we will then often get them to use a Maya munchie. Have you ever heard of a Maya munchie? No. What's a Maya munchie? Uh, it's it's a it's an Australian invention uh, that Dr. Kevin Burke, who's he's a dentist, who he was a visionary as well. He had studied Aboriginal skulls, and he realised that like many of the anthropologists that are coming up with the same thing is that uh, these Aboriginal skulls were beautiful, um, broad, wide jaws, and they had all of their teeth um, and they were healthy. And he, he saw this in kids' skulls and, and then he would go to his clinic during the day and see that the kids there had these malocclusions, these bad bites and they had decay. And so he started to get them to chew and develop. The first chew device was a, a red rubber device. Of, I haven't seen one of those original devices. I've only seen photos, but his family have, uh, he's unfortunately passed away, but his family has kept the business going and have now developed a really beautiful soft silicon chew device um, that it looks a little bit like a sports mouth guard. Uh, it's got tentacle, 
what you'd call tentacles on the inside. Uh, and kids just pop it in their mouth, get their lips closed, and they chew on it for about so five. I've seen um, a lot of these devices are on the market now because they want the people, they chew them and it makes their jaw wider and they, it's cosmetic, but it's also obviously having benefit too, right? So yeah, chewing of any kind is, is, is going to be good. Were you talking about a palate expander when you were talking before for the kids? Yeah, yeah. And I just wonder, like, if, you, if when I read your book, I sort of had the feeling that if you catch it early, you can do it with this with a lot of exercises. And if you sort of catch it later, you're sort of going to have to probably go down the road of a palate expander, a homeo block or something along those lines, or Dr. Mew's work. And I've written about some of those things. So those are, for those of you listening, those are, that's, is that an accurate way to look at it where you really, and, and, and the other question is, is any kind of snoring an indicator? People say, I snore, but maybe my mouth's closed, so I'm good. Okay, you've asked a few questions there. Yeah, I did. Sorry. Uh, let's do one at a time. Okay. If we want to build a healthy airway, in the same way as we might want to build a healthy body, we would start with like a fitness program, right? Right. Yeah. And so if you think about a fitness program for the upper airway, which is what I do in my clinic with little people, even if they've, if, if they don't have a diagnosable problem, but I see that things are a bit floppy and a bit sloppy or they could work a bit better, I get them onto this upper airway fitness program. And that really involves making sure they are breathing, chewing and swallowing really, really well. And that they, un they, they know how to move these muscles in the mouth and the face and the throat. And so I think the best time to do this, obviously we would want to catch kids from birth, but at the moment what I'm focusing on is getting it right when in kids in that three to five-year-old age group. First of all, what I found is that parents are really super receptive and so are the kids. So this upper airway fitness program is, um, it's fun and pretty much everything you do with kids has to be fun and kids love making noises and doing silly stuff with their face and their mouth and their throat so really that is what a lot of the exercises are about and that they're there to build good habits and they're there to build a strong and healthy airway now that's the first place we go but if a child has a diagnosable problem, so if they really are hypertonic or their muscles really are very weak and not working, or they're one of these kids that's got their mouth hanging open day and night and they're congested, then we're really looking at a more formal assessment and a diagnosis and a more formal treatment program. And the first thing might be just to make sure that the upper airway is clear because you know that, you know, there's allergy and there's digestive disturbances that can really inflame the tissues inside the upper airway. So it's not just the bones and the muscles in the airway, but the whole airway is lined with delicate mucosa or tissue. And that can and does get congested. Mm -hmm. or inflamed and it, so we need to deal with those issues you know we need to make sure that nose is clear we need to make sure that the throat muscles are clear uh, that we don't have excess mucus production um, and so that can be uh, managing diet looking at you know what are the things in a child's diet that are really creating those things that is really the first thing that we do, make sure that that airway is clear. And then we do a therapy, a, a very targeted therapy program on targeted muscles, just to train them to do what we need them to do. Mm. <clears throat> so what you're saying is you really do a thorough evaluation of how this, um, the, 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 the facial development, airway development, chewing, swallowing development, has gone awry 
and you give them specific therapies to fix that. If you gave those specific therapies and you were able to widen the palate, do we have enough room for wisdom teeth if we have proper jaw development or are we, have, we, have we devolved to the point where even with the most chewing that there is and the best airway development, nose breathing from a young kid, or have we devolved to the point where, just, where wisdom teeth just don't fit? It seems sort of really, I've got, we've got six kids and I just hate it when they come back and they go, my dentist and I can have my wisdom teeth full. I'm going, oh my God, really? I mean, I just, I, it just drives me crazy that it's just an automatic thing, you know? So can you, with doing everything proper, is there enough room for the average kid to not have their wisdom teeth pulled? That would be the aim. That would be the goal. Because we know if there's, you know, good jaw development, that is one of the key things to airway and good airway. And so our aim would be that we can fit those 32 teeth. You know, I, I, although interesting your question about the, you know, evolutionary aspects, and I read something recently that some kids are being born even without the wisdom teeth there now. So perhaps, oh yeah. I don't know what percentage, I still think that's a very low percentage. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, happening. and uh, there's a lot, and you, I'm sure you've heard this before, but <laughs> There's a bit of a revolution going on in dentistry and orthodontics now. And, you know, very long held beliefs like, you know, you can't grow bone after a certain age. They're being dispelled. And, uh, you know, there have been surgical techniques to widen the jaw or bring the face forward. But now there are non-surgical techniques and it's being shown that even in adults, you can do this. You can yeah. do it. And so for many adults who've, you know, they've, they've had problems with their airway and they've got all those dental problems to go with it and they go looking for help. And if they find one of these um one of these orthodontists or dentists who practices with, with these uh, growth gardens and then that they might end up expanding that palate again, either with or without surgery, and then putting in dental implants to take up those spaces that were lost initially. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, quite a few case studies, a lot of case studies out there now and showing that it can be done. I mean, ideally, we would set kids up for this to happen from birth and preferably before school. But really, this I think these case studies are showing us that it's never, ever too late. There's you, a um, lot of... Sorry, go uh, ahead. You, uh, you can finish, finish your thought, but, but after you finish that thought, the answer to this question... In your book, you talk about the glymphatic system, the system of lymphs in the brain that drain three pounds of plaque toxins out of your head every year while you sleep at night. I've written a lot about that on my website because in Ayurvedic medicine, which, I'm, which we do here is like ancient wisdom, modern science. We take the ancient, and if it's something that's been practiced for thousands of years and there's science to prove it, we're gonna write about it. Um, and they knew about the, lymph, the glymphatic system and they had techniques to use the nasal passageways because 50% of the lymph drains through the paranasal sinuses and all that. And they used techniques to clean out the brain lymphatics. I'm wondering, um, and you wrote, some, you wrote about that, how important that was. And I wonder if you've seen any studies showing that there's a direct link between uh, airway development, chewing, nose breathing, all of that and the function of the, uh, the glymphatic system, you know, because we know that chewing increases circulation. Does, I've seen studies where nose breathing can increase cerebral spinal fluid circulation. And I wondered if, if you've seen studies where all that can help the glymphatic system dump its trash the way it should. And therefore, um, in your book, you didn't make the case that this glymphatic system compromise was directly linked to attention deficit, cognitive decline, you know, lower IQ and all the things you talk about, but it seems very logical that it is. You can't get the trash out, right? You, you know, how can you think properly? How can the master computer know what to do? Yeah, definitely it interrupts memory 
functions. Yes, it interrupts all those functions. Okay, look, is there a study that directly links breathing at night and airway to glymphatics? and whether that system functions well. We do know that it's the, the plaques that are left behind by an incomplete glymph, glymphatic process are what are related to Alzheimer's and develop, development of Alzheimer's later. What we know about sleep disordered breathing is it is related to having a healthy airway and when there's sleep disordered breathing, which is on a continuum, you know, from the very severe problem to a very, to, it's not mild, but mouth breathing is at the, the, the simpler end of it and obstructive sleep apnea at the other end. We know that any kind of sleep disordered breathing will disrupt sleep architecture. So the ability for our body to pass through stage one, stage two, stage three, four, and REM sleep, that architecture needs to be solid and it needs to happen multiple times a night. And anything, anything at all that disrupts that sleep architecture will interfere with the glymph process, that glymphatic drainage process. So, Whilst I have, I've not yet seen a, a study, there, there may be one, I just haven't seen a study that directly links the two. So it's more by, you know, associations. We well, know- you make, the point. You, you make the point, right? That, that you have to go through stage one, two, three, four, and REM sleep multiple times for the glymphatic system to work properly. And we now have science show if the glymphatic system isn't working properly, it's linked to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, and even autoimmune concerns. So, yeah. and, and if, you know, if the airways, which we know, and you said by association, if the airways are affecting your ability to go through those four stages in REM sleep, in a, you know, again and again and again, well, then we should open up those airways. You know what I mean? And, Absolutely. And, that, yeah. and, and there's just, there's no other way of getting around that. You're talking about your brain, which is not draining its waste linked to Alzheimer's cognitive decline as you age. Um, and um, that's linked to how you sleep. So people who snore say, oh, I just snore. This is not good, right? We have to fix that, right? There's no excuse for snoring. There's no good snoring. Is that correct? Yes, correct. This <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I, I'm going to come back to something that I said, like right at the beginning, and it's to do with one of the myths and misconceptions around sleep. Even this week, I heard someone say to me, loud snoring means someone's in deep sleep, right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, it really is the opposite you know, that is going to keep you in light sleep phases. But I'm going to come back now, pair back to that question. Is light snoring okay? Not really. So if we think about sleep disordered breathing as a continuum, and at that really serious end, we have something like obstructive sleep apnea. And that's where the breathing will stop for 10 seconds at a time, multiple times an hour, depending on the severity. And it will deprive the, uh, the brain of oxygen. The next, the next level or that's on that continuum, we look at snoring and we, we would look at the whole continuum and snoring is really a vibration, right? It's, but where exactly is that vibration happening inside this throat or back of nose system? That's the key question. And, but what we do know is that the vibration is happening because the breathing is, is either too fast or there's a pressure imbalance or some of the structures are too close together. So typically snoring might happen, you know, at the back of the throat where the uvula is, 
the the dingly dangly the little you know on cartoons you see that little strip of uh, tissue that hangs down at the back of the throat it's usually that's the piece at the back of the throat that would be involved in the vibrational sound of snoring and that's really happening at the back of the nose but for some people snoring noise might actually be more at the back of the tongue so it's more of a rather than a so I don't know what kind of snoring you have and I don't know uh, so it, but it is such a great point because I'm going to show you Fred all right this is Fred oh, no. the head <laughs> so it, you know this helps us just to see the extent of the upper airway I mean it comes pretty much from the front of the face down to just below the vocal cords and so all of that is upper airway and pretty much any point along that airway there could be narrowing or collapse or obstruction and any one of those things can change the sound of breathing and so even light snoring so it's a softer sound it still means that at some point in that airway, there's narrowing. Just don't know exactly where. So one of the things that I do is to help parents to understand, we talk about breathing at night, like perfect breathing. I think one of the first things we talked about was we want silent breathing. It needs to be quiet. And so, you know, how do, how do we know then if there is audible breathing, then how do we work out which part of the airway that noisiness is happening? Like, why is it happening? So we use an app called Snorlab app. Have you heard of that? No, Snorlab app. Snorlab, yeah. There are, look, there are lots and lots of different systems and ways of measuring. This just happens to be um, something that I started using in my clinic, just as a, as a way of helping parents to capture, you know, what is going on with their child's breathing at night, because we don't expect parents to stay up all night and listen to their kids or watch them, right? right. Um, and so what this app uh allows is to listen to breathing at night and it will give a score at the end of the night and say how loud or not it was and so a score of zero would mean that that child had beautiful quiet breathing at night and of course if they're sharing a bed with a snorer you know it'll pick up the snorer so it's only going to work this app if you use it with a child who's not sharing a bedroom with another noisy sleeper so the audibility the other other features of breathing at night that we we might look or be worried about are if breathing stopped what if there were breath holds or breathing stops or there were moments where a child kind of woke themselves up with a gasp or a startle like it's as if their breathing had stopped and then suddenly their breathing kicked in again their body made their breathing start again these are signs that uh you know if you saw this in your child you would want to get some help you would want to get investigations and so uh Kids with big tonsils and adenoids, that's not uncommon uh, for them to have really noisy, disrupted breathing at night or to have their mouth open during night, during the night, or to have their head thrown back. Remember we were talked right in the beginning about an extended head position? Right. The body will always prioritise for breathing because it's life's essential process. Without breathing, we don't have life. And so in the night when a child is asleep, if the body is being thrown in this position to open the airway, our first question would be, what's in the way? You know, what's causing that? 
right? Yeah, this goes into that CPR position, right? Yeah, yeah. The... So I want to ask you a question. Um, uh, he, you know, here we talk a lot about, um, it's very common these days to tape your mouth closed, you know. Um, can you tape children's mouths and does it work? And how early can you do it? Um, you know, that, would that be traumatic for a kid? How, how does that work with kids? Adults, you can, I mean, I'm not talking about duct tape across the whole mouth, maybe just a piece of tape like that. You still yeah. have the size. What do you, do you use that as part of your, of your training or? Yeah, look, I, I think that the first thing that I would do with children is make sure that they're breathing well during the day. That is my top priority because it's like we said earlier, it's a 24-7 issue. And so I would want to be 100% confident that a child was breathing really, really well through their nose all day with their tongue up in the right rest position and their lips in the right rest position. And when I was fully confident that there wasn't anything blocking the airway at night, uh, and I felt that a child had simply developed a habit of nose breathing that just needed a period of time to break that, I might suggest that to parents. Uh, some parents are quite resistant to that idea. It's, it's, I think, a little bit scary for some parents, the thought of putting tape. And I remember suggesting many years ago, I suggested that um, to a parent of a teenager who'd, you know, he'd, he'd mastered his nose breathing in the day, but he was still breathing through his mouth at night. And I said, why don't you try a bit of tape? And the mum had a very, very strong reaction and said, oh my gosh, I couldn't do that. That's cruel. That was just one reaction. For many other parents, it is, a, you know, a natural progression uh, when they understand the importance of breathing through the nose quietly night and day, if they've gone through that process of helping their child breathe perfectly during the day, they're really, and it's still, it's not happening at night and we've ruled out any other problem like congestion or reflux or um, tonsils, big tonsils and adenoids, um, then often they're really happy to try it. And they mm -hmm. do very happily. And just that little bit of micropore tape, I think, um, is, is enough for many. And there are lots of products on the market. Some kids who genuinely have uh, like hypotonia or weak muscles, you know, things that would go with some medical conditions, it can be really helpful to also use tape that supports the jaw and stops the jaw from hanging open. And so mm -hmm. there are things like sleepy strips, uh, or chin straps that can be really quite helpful for holding the jaw closed. Like those headbands that come around and pull your job. Yeah, or there's just a smaller uh, chin straps that will just take from here, uh, you know, That's under cool. the chin and just up to the cheeks. Um, the sleepy strips I are quite good. It's like a Y shape that goes across the lips and then there's a, a, a vertical section that comes under the chin. Um, and, and, you know, that can be really, really helpful when kids need help to keep the jaw closed. And right. for some, they just need a period of time to help them, their, their brain develop new habits. Mm. It's brilliant. So, you know, everything you talk about is brilliant. And I want everybody to know the book is Sleep Wrecked Kids by Sharon Moore. It's on Amazon. You can get it anywhere. Um, you really need to tune into this. Um, this research and this work she's doing is so critical and so important. Um, um, Sharon, thank you so much. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to cover? Uh, any last minute things before we go? Mm. Maybe we could finish with just a couple of things. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think in, for everyone to embrace sleep as a as a foundation of health not even a pillar but as a foundation of health you know create your sleep sanctuary you know create a space and and habits in the house where sleep is truly sacred number one and if there's a problem don't wait you know 
act immediately. And for mums and dads and all the people looking after little people out there, prioritize your own sleep too, because it really, honestly, it is just as important for you as it is for the kids. And if I didn't believe this, I wouldn't be telling it, but I truly think that great sleep is transformative. It is, it is life-changing. And so embrace, embrace it. Wow. Thank you. I also want you, everyone to know that um, obviously Sharon's book is Sleep Correct Kids. You can find and more of her work at wellspoken.com.au. And that's in Australia. She's got three more mini books, sort of guidebooks coming out in February, uh, which will be up on, on, in, on Amazon and bookstores that you go to. And uh, it's called The Well Sleep Kids Guide. And the first book is Healthy Sleep Practices. Second book, Sleep and Breathing and How to Diagnose and Figure Out you know, What Problem Your Child Has and, and Then How to Fix It. And then also the third book is, you know, who do you go to? Who are the experts? You know, here we have, we, I think it's called Functional Orthodontics now that you can find someone. Like you said, there's a revolution in orthodontics, orthodonture, right? That, that's, that's taking place where they're not just pulling and bracing teeth. They're starting to look at, palate widening and, and strengthening jaw muscles and all this really amazing things that uh, I guess, you know, from what I understand, orthodonture started that way um, by spreading the palate and realizing we got to make room uh, because something's causing the jaw to get longer and narrower and thin and smaller. And that was the lack of chewing. So, uh, and chewing gum too, right, Sharon, that's, that's good. It's a good, you know, uh, do, do you recommend that for your kids or, or not? I don't. <laughs> hey, why not? Maybe. Why not? Well, not as a habit because kids will tend to just chew on one side. So okay. it develops yeah. quite an asymmetrical habit. I rather them chewing on chew noodles or munchies or, right. you know, right. something uh, or chewy food, really right. good chewy food with great chewing technique. Nice. But if you were an adult and you were chewing some mastic gum, which is really hard and getting a workout, you'd be okay with that as long as you you know got both sides worked out yeah yeah just remember you know you can almost just get into the habit of making sure you chew just as much on both sides yeah. so but important. don't uh, don't do it if you've got jaw joint problems definitely yeah. not if you've got clicky noisy sore jaw joints no gum okay i could talk yeah. to you forever this is such really brilliant work i want to thank you uh for coming and um, getting up so early for us in Australia, really appreciate that. The book, Sleep Right Kids, get it for sure. Send it as a gift for the holidays to your friends and family who have kids, super important. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very it's welcome. It's been a pleasure.